The Sorcery, we're the world's first community-powered recommendation platform and decision-making platform. 10,000 users, and we've scaled that organically. We raised more money than we originally set out to raise, actually. That's always nice. Yeah, we set out uh, asking for a million, and we got 1.8. So we ended up getting a term sheet, and then a few days later, they pulled the term sheet. And what I learned is that and that's one tip that I, I always have for founders is kind of is get feedback early on. I hope that I'll make huge amounts of money and then I would like to put that back into the ecosystem. You know, I fundamentally believe that if we had more women in positions of leadership and business and politics, that the world would be a better place. I think I'm just having a minor heart attack <laughs> that I'm sat across someone who is one degree away from Scott Galloway. He was always like, there are winners and there are losers in this world. You're either gonna do really well or you're gonna fail. And that's just how it is. My next guest, Kristen Cardwell, is the founder of Sorcery, the world's first community-powered recommendation engine. They managed to secure 1.8 million in pre-seed funding during one of the hardest times ever. Kristen Cardwell, congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's really nice to be here. No, pleasure to have you. So I mentioned this pre-seed that you managed to raise during one of the toughest climates ever. Again, wow, congratulations. What was that like for you? Yeah, uh, so we closed uh, last summer. Um, it was it was an interesting period because we had just come off the back of a really kind of uh, you know good period for fundraise, right? Um, a lot of founders were raising, and so we had kind of we had a lot of momentum when we went in, and and we can go into the raise in more detail later. But we you know we it started out strong. It, we had a term sheet. Everything was good. Everything was you know we were super excited. Um, and then actually kind of things started slowing down. And so we were, wor we were quite worried that, you know, towards the end of this closing process, you know, there was a huge risk of potentially um, things falling through. And um, in the end, you know, we, we, we managed to get all of the money and we raised more money than we originally set out to raise, actually. That's always nice. Yeah, we set out uh, asking for a million and we got 1.8. So Lovely, yeah, love so it when it was, that happens. It, it, yeah. It's like finding an extra fiver down yeah, the back of the tough, sofa. It was a tough time, but yeah. <laughs> it so happened. it all sounds quite positive. Did you start the process quite early then? Because I know the past 12 to 18 months have been a rough ride for early stage founders. So did you start that process earlier on then? Or? Yeah, so we when we went out to raise, we closed in uh, three months flat, um, end to end from the start of raise to close. Um, you know, for from our, it was a structured process Amazing. at that point. But I did go out prior and kind of get feedback from, um, you know, friendly angel investors, people in the space, you know, and that's one tip that I, I always have for founders is kind of is get feedback early on, right? And get feedback from people with experience in the space in particular. Um, and yeah, and they might invest, mm. you know, before you've even started, so. Amazing. But it wasn't all plain sailing for you during this fundraise process, no. was it? You said that it was all getting a bit rocky towards the end there. Yeah. What happened? Um, yeah, so we, it was, yeah. <laughs> we basically, <laughs> we went out to raise. We, you know, you start this process and you're like, I've got a structured process in place. I, you know, I'm going to reach out to 100 or so investors, um, you know, we've kind of built a relationship beforehand or I've gotten warm intros, I've done the thing. You set them up kind of all at the same time um, and you kind of run through thinking, you know, you set deadlines, right? Like here's the deadline for term sheet, here's the deadline for close. And um, 
you kind of go into it. It's, it's a little scary because you don't know what you're going to come out with on the other side. But you, you set in place these parameters to make, you know, to, to put things in your favor. Um, so basically, we went through and we, we ended up getting uh, a term sheet that, um, again, we were super excited about. And then a few days later, they pulled the term sheet, actually. And what I learned was that they pulled the term sheet because there was another founder who felt we were competitive that they had already invested in. And this guy was going around, not just to this one particular investor, but actually to everyone on his board, which was several investors that were very prominent that we were speaking to, kind of telling everyone not to invest in us. Um, so that was tough. I, you know, I, we were being blocked and I had no way of kind of directly uh, addressing that. And so I asked this investor, I said, can you just let me speak to this guy? You know, let me, let me have a chat with him because I actually don't think that we're competitive business. I actually think, you know, we could be complimentary and there's enough space for both of us, blah, blah, blah. So I ended up speaking with him directly, and I think, you know, I just killed him with kindness, basically. Killed him with kindness, but also a very kind of rational discussion about why we weren't competitive. And you ended up speaking directly to, to the founder, founder just to yeah. clarify. Oh, yeah. Wow. And, you know, I was like, look, I don't think that we're competitive businesses, and here's why. But also, I think I made him feel a little bit bad. <laughs> <laughs> that um, takes some balls. That takes some yeah. bravery to go to the person that has shaken the apple cart that's made one of your investors pull the term sheet literally days before it was meant to close. And not only that, but like going around and speaking to others that have got different portfolios. Yeah, and it happens more often than you realize. It sounds so it shady. quite a lot, actually. Um, As in what, the chatting to each other and... Uh, well, founders kind of going and trying to block other de deals because they feel it's competitive. Wow. Um, which I learned in this process. Right. And so anyway, I... Um, yeah, I spoke to him and ultimately, I didn't think that I had convinced him in the chat, to be honest. Um, but then the next day, that same investor came back to us and said, actually, I don't know what you told him, but, you know, we're, he's, he's fine. He's dropped it. I still want to invest in you. <laughs> what do you think? Do you know what? For so I won't, I won't tell you how it ended up. Um, <laughs> but basically, we ended up having multiple offers. And so we were in a, a really privileged position after that to be Sounds able to. Sounds like you ended up in a much better position because of <laughs> because of these child childish <laughs> games that kind of it's so funny because it just makes me think of like the sophistication around like a bit dar and like valuing a business and like how to calculate shares and when you go for investment like how much stake are they going to have in your and like does that dilute the and especially if it's like a pre-seed like an early stage yeah. round what what impact does that then have for future yeah, and then, then it's all like these other factors but then you've got this silliness of these playground <laughs> games that go on which yeah. literally are so ridiculous it's just yeah. such a funny dichotomy of that sophistication and silliness that goes yeah, on Yeah, I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot of, like, behind-the-scenes <laughs> politics and back chat, and, you know, you just, you wouldn't, you would never mm. know, actually. My um, experience of VC investors is um, they, they do kind of, they do go with the crowd a little bit more. They do get caught up in the trends and FOMO. Nothing motivates VC investors like FOMO is what, I've kind of seen. Um, do you think they were so easily kind of swayed from this chat with this one founder? Like, how we like how do you go about just managing 
like VC investors when they're Mesh, when they're seeing when I was talking about you. right like it's <laughs> it's a different game that you've kind of got to play haven't you yeah I think it I mean that's that's most prominent in the earliest stages mm. so we we were pitching pre-seed and uh this we had built the technology we had built a lot of the structure and I have to tell you more about the business definitely we had kind of built the foundations of the business um but we had not hired a team yet it was my co-founder and I we um you know we were still essentially pitching on a business plan um with some some of the fundamental kind of technology there and so you know, there's nothing to judge at that stage, right? So it really is, they're making a bet on the founders, they're making a bet on the business plan and the vision and future potential. And you're kind of, you know, in a way, you've got to manifest this stuff as a founder. You're, you're really, yeah, you're pitching the vision. And so I, I can see how at that stage it does, you know, they, investors probably, they're, they're talking to everyone, getting, getting an opinion. And mm. certainly um, if they feel you have momentum elsewhere, that helps. So, mm. um yeah, you would ask me to think a little bit about advice. You know, I think one of the best things you can do for yourself as a founder is just to try to line up as many meetings as possible, you know, uh, all, all at the same time. Because the more investors that you're talking to at once, uh, you know, the better the chances of getting competitive mm. offers. and Amazing. Um, yeah. Keep your options open. Yeah. It's a really valid point that you make where there's it, – it's – there's less to go off at such early stages when you're getting like pre-seed investment. It is really based on more of that, like the founder buying into the vision, the heuristics and all the rest of it. So tell us about Sorcery exactly. I mentioned it a little bit in the intro, but what exactly is it? What does it do? Who's it for? Yeah, so Sorcery, we're the world's first community-powered uh, recommendation platform and decision-making platform. So um, we have both a consumer site, sorcery.co, and we also have a B2B business. Um, so sorcery.co is where any individual can go online. They can look at the products that are best matched to them based on people just like them. Um, and then we help brands and retailers uh, make better decisions about consumers um, based on our tech, based on the data that we collect about individuals. But basically, it was all born from this struggle as you know, it usually is. It was my own personal struggle and Alex's struggle with eczema. Um, Alex is Alex Chris's is my co-founder. Co yeah, way, yeah. <laughs> fantastic co-founder, Alex. Um, so we're both eczema sufferers. We, you know, we've both worked in the worlds of consumer and beauty and e-commerce and startups and tech. And we felt despite all of this experience and despite, you know, having actually worked in the beauty industry, we really struggled to find products that were well suited to our skin. And um, we've had lots of flare-ups with eczema in the past, and it's always been trial and error with different products. Um, and we found over and over that the best recommendations for new products always came from people just like us. And so we basically set out to scale the power of that recommendation, the power of that one-to-one -one connection between two similar people recommending one thing to another. Um, so that's how Sorcery was born. Essentially, we've started with... Uh, curating recommendations based on people just like you. Mm -hmm. um, I love so, the name yeah. too. Where did the Thank name come you. from? That, oh gosh, that was just me and Alex kind of sitting in a room for a long time, <laughs> uh, brainstorming lots of different things. But it kind of, it plays off of being a source of truth. So, um, you know, it's spelled like the source of truth. Um, 
yeah, source of truth, but also a bit of magic, a bit yeah. of mystery. Um, I love that. Like the kind you, of tech behind how it all works. I love yeah. the spelling. I often rip into like startup name misspellings, <laughs> but I genuinely, I love this. The ending with the IE, it just has like a prettiness to it as well. So yeah, great. Gotta name. make it seem French, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true, true. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And so are you starting off in the kind of wellness category with kind of health and beauty products? Yeah, exactly. Starting with health and beauty uh wellness products um yeah consumer products that you that care products mm-hmm. um and in terms of b2b we work with everything from beauty brands to dental care brands to yeah any any sort of kind of care consumable product which makes perfect sense given your background so Kristen here responsible for maybe she's born with it maybe it's Maybelline <laughs> I cannot take credit for that that's been that slogan has been around for a long time I'm not that old yet but <laughs> definitely responsible for the product creation of some super famous brands that I'm sure are sat on pretty much every female listener's bathroom cabinet shelf maybe some guys in there as well <laughs> so you worked at so Maybelline before yeah L'Oreal yeah Refinery29 so this must be worlds apart right like coming from these huge household brand names to startup land what's that transition been like for you yeah um so I I, I started my career at L'Oreal they own Maybelline um which is the largest cosmetics brand in the world um yeah completely different world right huge huge company um I had the privilege and I I I loved kind of I was on the central global team for Maybelline in New York so we were the team that was coming up with new ideas um we would look at market trends across the globe and look at gaps in the portfolio and opportunities um and basically come up with new concepts for new products and then we worked with the labs to create the formulation we worked with creative teams on the campaigns you know the global campaigns that's so cool worked with you know product development on like the physical product and how it looked and yeah and then we worked with the local teams globally to roll it out and so I was able to kind of work across you know western markets Europe uh, US um, and Asia and at one point in time I helped um, launch a whole new line for Maybelline in China, which has a totally different positioning. It's a luxury kind of positioning over there in department stores. Amazing. So, What's that one yeah. called? Just out of um, well, it's still called Maybelline, but, oh, okay. um, but basically, you know, Maybelline here, you know, is a drugstore brand and over there it's yeah. a luxury brand. And right. Yeah. And so we launched lots of, you know, sub brands and products kind of all over the world. And it was a lot of fun. So in a way it was very entrepreneurial, um, mm. very... Yeah, as, as entrepreneurial as you can get yeah. in a large company, but very political. And so, I was know, just about to say, I mean, I it sounds like a dream job, right? Like being sat <laughs> central global team, New York, literally like creating these new makeup products. It's the stuff of like these rom-com drama like, <laughs> films, right? Like, it was very Devil Wears Prada, the, right, the like, environment. Well, also, did you see the J-Lo film where this, li- it's like much more relevant. <laughs> What's it called? Um Oh God! It will come back to me. I there's, don't know. There's a Gen- it's your career, basically. There's a Jennifer <laughs> Lopez film where she pitches this new product to the headquarters, and they get yeah, to make yeah. it. Yeah, there, there was definitely like, pitching. So that's actually probably one of the best skills I learned was pitching and sales, actually. And it was not a sales role, uh-huh. right? It was you know how to kind of pitch in an idea, how to get buy-in how to get people on board with your vision. Mm. Um, had to do that really early on in order to get anything through and to actually, yeah, to get 
products on the shelf that and people that was, are still using today. And that was just kind of the pitching internally like, yeah. to the other, <laughs> yeah, to the powers that be. No, I've definitely had a taste of that and it is bloody painful. So how do you navigate that? Like what were some of the tips that you learned from from trying to pitch to get things over the line that you've taken with you now to securing like huge fundraisers? Oh gosh, I think, you know, I think in the early days of my career, it was much more about just kind of, um, it was like the formulation of why this is a good idea, why there's a market opportunity for it, you know, why now? Um, that sort of translates a bit to startup world when you're pitching to investors, but probably um, my more recent experience is really where I got a lot more kind of fundamental experience in deal making. So working in business development um, at Refinery29 and at WPP, these are um, yeah, media companies and uh, agency and big agency holding company. Mm. Um, so I was doing a lot more deals. So mm. at Refinery29, for example, um, I, you know, I did one of our licensing deals to Sky Media, for example, you know, and Refinery was a very small company in relation to a Sky. So that mm. was quite a big a big thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Refinery29 was much more of an entrepreneurial experience, I would say, because when I joined, we were just a few people. Um, they had just launched outside of the US into Europe. And so mm. I was one of the first uh, international leadership hires um, and helped expand the business cool. outside of the US. Amazing. I would imagine that working at these larger organizations, just again, sticking with that theme of persuasion and influence in terms of pitching and trying to get something over the line or trying to achieve whichever outcome it is that you have in mind I'd imagine like such a huge part of it is navigating different personalities mm. knowing how to code switch or adapt your communication style or there's just some things where like I know that if I throw all the numbers at this person it's going to make sense. Whereas I know with this person, I'm going to have to make it like visual and paint a picture. Yeah. Like, can you elaborate a little? Like, is that true? And is there any more you can yeah, add to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, it, it, it's the same whether you're pitching to investors um, or to, for us, potential customers. Um, so brands and retailers that are buying our software and our data, you know, we see big differences in what they're interested in. So, um, you know, some brands that we work with are, are, you know, super keen on the data and like really understanding their customers and using the power of um, our software. Our software kind of pulls uh, from the existing universe of customer data out there to paint a picture of who their customers are. And we can also kind of get new learnings for them using our existing audience, mm -hmm. our existing consumer base um, that is on our site. Um, some are super interested in that. Some are really interested in what we can do with the community and like the content we can create for them through the community and the personalization we can do for them on their site mm. with our community. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite different. Mm. Just, I have to kind of read, you know, where the interest is and quickly adjust because mm. as a as a B two B company, we do have you know, the, the underlying technology that we're selling is the same, but different use cases, yeah. right? And then with selling to investors, yeah, also similarly, you know, you see investors who are very keen on vision and what's next and how am I going to 10x this business and, you know, what's next, what's next, you know, have it, they haven't reached their potential yet. So, like, how, what are the layers and how do we how do we get to be that billion-plus business? Mm. Where, and, and more U.S. investors tend to be into the vision, I think, and the, that, you know, 
yeah, make it a billion plus business. Whereas in the UK and Europe, I tend to find there's a lot more interest in the unit economics and the numbers mm. um, and you get you get both everywhere but yeah yeah interesting to hear a little bit of that difference across the Atlantic right where over here it's a little bit more nitty-gritty is what I'm taking away from yeah. that a bit more in the detail yeah whereas in the US it's a bit more kind of big picture thinking like yeah generally like yeah broadly speaking. a bit yeah. yeah so being adaptive is definitely kind of key thing there yes. it just it reminds me of one of the worst salespeople I ever worked with were completely bought in to that idea of what like a stereotypical, i.e. bad like salesperson <laughs> looks like, which is like having the gift of the gab, walking into the room and being the one that's like talking the most. Whereas like literally it couldn't be further from the truth. Like some of the best deals I've ever done, some of the best mm. clients I've ever had, some of the best meetings is where I've said the absolute least. And actually Google yeah. did did a really interesting research piece on this, which showed that the person who left a meeting having spoken the most amount of words was the one who felt the most positive about how the meeting had gone. Nice. So it like directly correlated to that feelings of positivity. So actually yeah. like you don't have to have like the gift of the gab and going in and blabbering away. Like actually it's more about the listening, like listen, knowledge is power, see what their interests, see how, however much you can gauge to then yeah. tailor like your pitch as much as possible. Yeah, a hundred percent. I, um, no, I'm very much a listener. I'm very much, you know, on the spectrum of introvert to extrovert, I tend to lean more introverted, um, but can sway both ways, I suppose. Um, but I, yeah, I really, I, I enjoy the listening aspect of it. Actually. Like, I really enjoy getting to know other people and understanding, their motivations you know and it's that's with investors it's with people I'm trying to sell to it's with my employees I like I like understanding what really drives them fantastic which Um, ultimately makes you a better salesperson yeah yeah fantastic gosh I sound like such a salesperson (laughs) my um, my co-founder she's really you know it's uh, she's she's got all the all the hard you know well, tech and data skills so she's a good balance it, this is almost <laughs> like you read my mind because I was literally just about to come on to your co-founder so thank you for that very natural <laughs> segue there that was spot on <laughs> so how did you and your co-founder meet so we met about five years ago now um at a women's networking event actually and nice. it was um it wasn't a tech event it was just a general um kind of professional women's thing and we, we just really got on. We're both Americans based in London. Uh, we both have had kind of similar parallel lives, both professionally and also personally. Um, professionally, we both have come over to do international expansion and, you know, to grow businesses that were US-based businesses here. Um, and yeah, just really got along and kept in touch. And I just felt... I remember having this idea for a business and just thinking, Alex, like Alex is the person. I need to go talk to Alex. And I hadn't spoken to her in a while, actually. And I, I kind of chased her down and I was like, you've got to have breakfast with me. I have something to talk to you about. (laughs) She had no idea what I was going to chat with her about, but, um, what a great, I was, I was like, Hey, you know, I'm working on this thing. Do you want to work on it with me? And it definitely evolved a bit, but, um, but yeah, I, I really kind of had to, you know, I had to, it was, I had to get out of my comfort zone and ask her to, you know, be my co-founder. Right, right. Um, you know, and we bonded over this, you know, eczema that we had and this, yeah, it, 
it all just kind of flowed from there, really. Amazing. <laughs> well, one of the other things that I know you've both got in common is you are both so highly educated. You both, between the two of you, we literally have like the top universities in the world. I know you went to NYU Stern, right? Yeah. That's one of your uh, alma mater. Yeah. Alex, MIT, and Cambridge. Uh, Cambridge. Yeah. I mean, you cannot get any better than that. How much do you think the this amazing education that you've both had um, increases your chance of success? Like, how important do you think it's been for you both to have like these amazing? Yeah, going to these amazing universities. I think it certainly helps with the network. Um, and yeah, it's something that, it's an interesting question that you asked because I I feel, so I, I started my career in New York at L'Oreal um, and I went, so I, I originally, I, I'm from mostly Austin, Texas. And so I was, it was a big new world working in New York um, and then I went to school in New York and I was really interested in staying in New York because I loved it. So yeah, I, so I went to NYU, um, and I was looking at a few schools and, um, I had the opportunity to go to another school in New York, but I went to NYU because I got a full scholarship to go there. Wow. I didn't have a full scholarship to go anywhere else. Wow. Um, and I think, so I feel really lucky. I feel really fortunate. Um, and I think, you know, it's very, it's, I'm really passionate about sort of economic empowerment and sort of upward mobility. And, um, you know, I think there are a lot of people that have the potential. They don't have the networks. They don't have the means, um, you know, to get into these schools or to go, you know, to pay for these schools. Um, and then, you know, that, that has a knock-on effect when it comes to careers and everything else. And so, so yes, do I think it was helpful? Yes. Did I learn a lot? Yes. Like the, the education was phenomenal, um, but the network was really valuable. And I'm sure Alex would say the same thing, mm. um, you know, with her degrees. Um, and yeah, do I think that it's helped? I, I think actually, I think more, I think in the UK more than in the US, uh, there's definitely like a, there's a lot of importance placed on names. Interesting. And, and university names okay. and Do you professional. think that's because we're more into like heritage and that kind May- of Maybe, like, yeah, maybe. That's funny. I wouldn't have guessed that. Um, right. my yeah. Se- <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> and I'm loving the whole kind of how the UK versus US kind of compare all these things. Is I really love the UK, by the way. Sure. Um, that's not meant to sound like a negative no, no, thing. No, and great. I also, I, you know, I loved my education and Alex did too. But yeah, yeah, yeah it's... Amazing. Yeah. Well, my selfish burning question before we move on with NYU Stern is if you got to meet Scott Galloway. I did. Oh my God. Yeah, I was in one of his classes. Just one? He's, yeah. Like he, a one-time thing? Or was so it, about, uh, it was a semester-long class, oh, yeah. Oh I was God. in his brand strategy class, actually. And so he, you're he grouped me. us into winners and losers. <laughs> I was not a winner in that class, actually. <laughs> I think I'm just having a minor heart attack that I'm sat across someone who is one degree away from Scott Galloway. I'm also going through like a major it's so funny. Some, fangirl moment. So somebody well. else, somebody else told me, another woman told me this actually, that she's obsessed with Scott Galloway. And I, I didn't realize actually that he's become such. Um, she, she's fangirling over here. You're genuinely like giggling. I didn't realize he's become such a thing. He, he's going through his like daddy cool moment where yeah. we're all like, we've all realized this man. I, 
Scott Galloway is great. I did not have that moment with him. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but, good. I mean, you're but, in his class. I wouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't realize that he's such a thing. Um, he's incredibly smart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Excellent speaker. Mm. And, um, you know, at the time that I was in his class, was always releasing these really fantastic re- reports on the state of the world, really. Mm. Um and always has such a good grasp on the future and what's coming. Yeah. Um, Do you have any specific like, anecdotes oh, from Scott Galloway? And this is purely for me. So ho- <laughs> I'm hoping that some <laughs> listeners here are also interested to hear. Uh, no, he was just really funny because he was he was always like, there are winners and there are losers in this world. And in my class, you know, he like you're a winner or you're a loser and like you're either gonna do really well or you're gonna fail. And that's just how it is. And they're only like they're only you know, two people who are going to win in this class. And when I say win, you know, I think he just made us, he made us give this presentation in front of everyone and like, you know, divided everyone up and said, you know, you, you three out of 25 uh, groups, you know, you guys, fantastic job. Everyone else, you're all losers sort of thing. Like not exactly, but it was essentially no, like, imagine. it was kind of putting everyone in their place because everyone's really smart and, you know, right, right. everyone put in a lot of effort. Right. <laughs> Classic, crafty. I can totally imagine. He does not mince his words. He's brilliant. I love him. Yeah, it was so long ago. Um, yeah. Oh my God. I don't believe you got to do a semester with Scott. I mean, that's worth a full scholarship, like yeah. right there. So apparently, <laughs> apparently he's, I guess he lives here now. He does. And I didn't know that either until somebody else just told He told- lives in Marylebone. Don't wow. ask me how I know that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I may or may not try and hang out and get brunch at the weekend to cross paths with Scott Galloway. He also drinks at Guy Ritchie's pub. I never even knew really? that Guy Ritchie had a pub, but apparently it's in the area. So I did not know that. Yeah, it's funny because any American that I meet here in London... For some reason, they tend to cluster, and we're about to hear where you live in London now, but <laughs> they either tend to cluster either Marylebone, Hampstead, those seem to be coming yeah, out as like areas. little America there, in London. <laughs> you don't live in either of those places. Okay, so you're, you're the exception to the rule then. Quick fun fact. Did you know that the annual spend on outsourcing and hiring agencies is $900 billion? This year alone. That's why I'm so proud to collaborate with 50pros.com, a new and fast-growing platform that connects highly vetted agencies with companies looking for their next marketing partner. If you've ever had to source your own agency before, then you'll know unless you've had a good referral, it can be like trying to find a needle in a haystack. That's why with 50pros.com, they provide you with a curated, vetted, no noise directory of only the top 50 firms within 50 categories. Head to the link in the show notes, 50pros.com, and I really hope this helps you get it right with your next marketing partner. All right, let's get back to the show. So um, so education, you found that, you know, really helped you in terms of network as well. Upwards mobility, mm. economic empowerment, you're super passionate about. So you're also the co-founder of Alma Angels. Yes. So um, tell us what Alma Angels is exactly. Yeah. So uh, Alma Angels is a group of angels that pledge to invest in female founders. Um, I cannot take credit for running it most recently. I have to give full props to my co-founders on Alma. 
um, Ella and David and Deepali, um, who have been keeping it running since I started sorcery, because sorcery has been so full on. Um, but I did help in the early days and we launched it together. Um, How fantastic, by the way, I just want to mention, so the four of you, so yourself, Dipali Nanjia, Ella Goldner, mm -hmm. David Fogel, mm -hmm. he was a um, judge on a recent Female Founders event as well. Just props to him for being such a great feminist. Yeah, he's such a great We need advocate. the guys. I mean, fantastic that you three, you know, it's amazing. It's a wonderful initiative. Um, just to also check the angels as part of the network. They don't have to be women themselves, do they? It's just yeah, pledging exactly. to invest in female founders. But getting more guys involved exactly. is so crucial. So props to David Fogel. You're doing amazing. Um, but you set it up with the, with the other three. And, um, and I know you've been involved in some other initiatives as well that help. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Alma, so basically... Um, yeah, just want to give props to them. We so basically, it's it's angels that have committed to investing in female founders, and it's it's sort of it's not a syndicate, it's not a fund, but it's it's a pledge essentially. And mm. so um, we they hold everyone in the group accountable to investing in female founders, and it's measured every year. Um, yeah, I've also been involved um, with Women's World Banking and um, Women for Women International, kind of throughout my life. That's kind of a common th theme throughout my life, I think, is that I'm really passionate about, um, yeah, just raising up more women. Um, I fundamentally believe that, you know, if we as a world had more women in positions of leadership and business and politics, that the world would be a better place. Um, a woman, <laughs> a woman and, to that. Yeah, and, um, and, and not just women, but also underrepresented communities. Um, I'm half Mexican-American, so, you know, I, I, I really, I hugely want to see more people of color and uh, in positions of leadership as well. And, mm. um, but yeah, I've kind of, I guess, focused my own efforts on women. Um, yeah, Women for Women International. They're doing amazing work, so um, check them out as well. Mm -hmm. They uh, they support women survivors of war. Um, By the way, and so help just them rebuild their communities. So, amazing. Yeah. Sorry, it's just cut in, but just on that, we'll mm -hmm. add any relevant links in the show notes. Yeah, amazing. So if there are specific pledges, initiatives that people can get involved in, whether it's Alma Angels, Women for Women International, any of these other things that you mentioned, we'll pop them in the show notes. So any Brilliant. listeners can help support in that as well. Um, there's still, I feel like there's still a long way to go with a lot of these things, whether it is gender equality or just leveling the playing field for underrepresented groups, as you say, I guess like we don't have another three hours to get stuck into this, <laughs> but like, I guess, where do you think we can have the most impact now when it feels like there's no single silver bullet? Mm. There's so many. It's so nuanced and generational. There's so, so much that would need to change over a long period of time. But I guess, like, do you have any thoughts on what could be, like, low-hanging fruit to help us make mm. some headwaves in the right direction? Yeah. I think, I mean, there are just so, there's so many places to affect change um you know as you've said all sides of the equation uh i think getting more money to female entrepreneurs female business owners not just venture backed money but just you know business owners period is a start um you know i'd love to see you know, i think 
yeah, I've tried to, I guess, tackle that from multiple lenses, Alma in a way. It's, they're backing, uh, you know, VC kind of potential companies. But also, I think the power of angels is that they can invest in companies that are not necessarily meant to be VC backed, right? Mm-hmm. Companies that are good companies and can be profitable and, and don't need kind of huge amounts of VC money. Mm. Um, Do you think getting more <clears throat> female angel investors Definitely getting more female investors into the ecosystem. Mm. You know, I, I, I'm not really in a, in a position to invest <laughs> right now a lot, but, you know, I hope that I'll make huge amounts of money and then mm. I would like to put that back into the ecosystem. Mm. You know, I, I would love to see more women investing, period. I think that was probably, that is probably one of the, the successes of Alma so far really is maybe it's less about the founders that the group backed and more about how it's created, it's gotten more women into the investment ecosystem because I now look around and I see lots of sort of um, alumni from Alma in different places. Uh, so Deep Holly, one of the co-founders, is now a partner at um, Speed Invest, investing in female founders. That's her focus. Um, you know, we've got, yeah, a number of, of women that kind of came in as as new angels or had just invested for the first time or started to invest in the first for the first time and now they're uh, they're at funds or they're angel investing more regularly um so i really i do think that that's that's made some change yeah brilliant um and yeah i would love to see more women women investing yeah fantastic um, and yeah and there's so many levels yeah non-profit you know, politics. Yeah, I, I would love to see more participation across the board. I love that. I love what you're saying about just literally like fund more women, like just get more money into women's hands. Like it's not going to be, you know, it's only going to be a good thing. And it just, it does go to show as well how it is so complex and how it goes back so many steps because you see, you know, the, little boys the toys that they get handed when they're two years old and how the ripple effect you know opens up their eyes to the world of engineering science they go into the you know they study maths they go into finance they then have these careers um I did read somewhere that the gender pay gap doesn't really take into um it doesn't really kind of go into effect until um, kind of the age of motherhood. So you've got the motherhood penalty that comes into it, but you've got, so then you've got the pay gap that starts to emerge. And then mm. if you want to venture into entrepreneurship, it's it's that whole thing where, yeah, we might all be running the same race, but we're starting from very, very different start points. So if you've got all of these personal savings from these huge bonuses that you might've had from this career in industry, mm. um, a career in banking, you know, like it makes it, so much easier yeah and especially if like oh naturally the expectation would be that the mum would be handling the kids anyway if you start to go into like a family environment it's just that kind of it's that story it's that cookie cutter kind of you know story that we just hear over and over and over again so as you say you know even you you know you're a success sorcery becomes a unicorn you exit and make all this money that's going to have such a huge direct impact on all these other female founders that are sat where you are now in the early stages of starting out their own startup, but that's not going to be yeah. for a but while. But it's all, yeah, it's all these, it's all these little things yeah. though, right, that you're talking about. So, you know, what you're doing now, hosting this podcast, um, you know, getting more, you, you have men and women and, and 
you know, really diverse speakers, right? But getting that that diversity, you know, on your show. Um, you talked about, you know, little boys and what they're taught growing up. I, I'm the mother of two young boys, so I have a three-year-old and uh, an eight-month-old. And, yeah, I see it. It's so – it's hard, you know. It's I, – I make such a conscious effort to try to expose them to so many different things because uh, it – you do feel like the world is kind of pushing, pushing your children in a certain way and mm. pushing women in a certain direction. Mm. And I think it's changing, definitely. But mm. – <clears throat> yeah, it's the toys that they're gifted, and mm. it's kind of yeah, the language, every the language, everything. And yeah, and so, so I'm much. really, I'm kind of yeah obsessive about you know if they get gifts, am I happy? <laughs> like, yeah. Are these toys they can play with? Are they gender neutral? Mm. Are they you know? You kind really of, go into like the clothing yeah. section of yeah. the store, right? <laughs> yeah, and you see exactly. the boys' clothes and the girls' clothes, like literally <laughs> even that. So it's really interesting because some of the most like passionate. Uh, women that I know who are really really care about these female empowerment initiatives if they happen to be mum sorry if they happen to be mums most of the time they happen to be mums of boys which might just be a massive coincidence but it comes up time and time again which I love as well because again it kind of connects back to like David Fogel who mentioned earlier like getting more men just aware educated feeling comfortable to even speak up like how on earth can we expect men to be allies when they feel so well when they don't recognize the problem well which i think actually is is a huge part of it i would challenge i think where things are getting better and there's so much more conversation around it i from my perspective, it seems as though it's not so much about recognizing the problem. I think it's more the hesitation and the fear of like, it's, you know, it's not my fight to fight. It's not my, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't want to put a foot wrong. And especially in this day and age with cancel culture and all the rest of it, like I I can definitely empathize with, with that, with like that. I do want to help. I do want to do the right thing, but like, I don't know how to go about it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I think yeah, probably multiple levels. It's 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 not kind of grasping the problem because it doesn't right. affect them directly. Mm. It's maybe being uncomfortable with the solution and feeling maybe there's not enough space for all of us. I don't know, but mm. I do think it's really important to just ingrain. You know, you know, from a young age with my boys, I think, it, you know, making sure that they see women and men kind of equally when it comes to career paths and you read so many books and the default is always he so Mm. ensuring that I'm buying books where there are female characters and female leads or even like changing the pronouns sometimes when I'm reading to them um but yeah and you know and then you know making sure that we're kind of practicing the same things in our home that uh that I want to see out in the world and Mm. I want my boys to be you know, to learn. So my husband is also running a company, a bigger company than me. Um, but he's, he's sort of, he's an entrepreneur as well and has raised loads of money and he's home every night to put the boys to bed. So, you know, he, we both share responsibilities equally. Um, and so having that equal partnership is really important. That's so good to hear. And I think, you know, basically it's all these little micro things I think everyone can do at some level, Mm. um, in, in all of our behaviors every day that, make a difference ultimately I love that 
So wrapping up and connecting this back to kind of the business story, the one of the core beliefs of this podcast is that sometimes the best lessons can come from the biggest mistakes. <laughs> you did share a little bit before about kind of the bumpy road to securing your pre-seed. Have there been any other lessons learned along the way that you'd like to share? Yeah, it's such a good question. Uh, yeah, I think, I think probably it boils down to being... I talked about this with my co-founder, Alex, before I came. I think it's it's both of us being more confident in our ability as entrepreneurs to see things first and set the direction. Um, because I think you, it, we're both first-time entrepreneurs. And so we kind of came into this business feeling like, okay, you know, we cover this, this, and this, and I've got experience here in business development, sales, and, and data, and tech, and this and that. But there are certain things we were like, mm, not quite my domain. I don't really know how that works. And obviously, we're figuring things out every single day. Um, but I think the biggest thing was we could have we could have been quite we could have been leaner to start with when it came to hiring our team, and we probably didn't need to hire. Um, you know, in particular, somebody to head up product and somebody to head up growth roles um, right off the bat. We actually needed something very different. And we've realized that now and we've recalibrated. But what, what we needed to do in the very early days was to just do those roles ourselves. You know, we've done that now. Um, you know, we've got uh, 10,000 users and we've scaled that organically. And, wow. Um, we've got, you know, this incredible kind of custom-built product and technology that that personalizes e-commerce end to end but we really like had to get in and do it ourselves um and basically hire kind of get specialist expertise where we needed it mm -hmm. um for advice but to figure out these things kind of um you really you've really got to dig in and do it yourself mm, as get in the trenches yeah and I think just and also just making decisions as a company um I think it is important to us that our team feels heard and we're a very, um, I'd say we're like a really collaborative environment um, and we really expect everyone to kind of own their domain but to build together. So mm. no no role, you know, it's if it's not in your domain, it doesn't really matter. You just, you do what you have to do to get things done. Mm. Um, and that own your domain, build together is part of our values. But I do think there are times where you have to just actually set the direction as the leaders. And um, yeah, I think if we had just also maybe listened a little bit less to people outside of us, mm. um, whether they be advisors, investors, uh, whatever, um, I think we, you know, we, we see things before anybody else does mm -hmm. as founders, as entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so to just listen to our gut more. Have more confidence kind of, yeah. in that. Yeah, makes sense. exactly. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Kristen. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to hear your story. And I will definitely be grilling you much more on Scott Galloway details <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be putting our listeners through that. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed this episode. You know what to do. Please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on some other amazing episodes we've got coming up. Big thank you once again, Kristen. It's been great to have you. 